Hello, Amanda. Hi, Jim. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. And you? Have you been out and about? Um, yeah, I've been looking at my really scruffy garden because, as you know, I'm a really, really scruffy gardener. But um, I was looking at it with new eyes, um, thinking that actually what I was doing was a service to biodiversity because I'm just rewilding patches of my garden. It's not very big. Um, so rather than clearing and planting, I've just let things go. So it's seed heads and leaves because that's what we're all about now, rewilding. That's, it's the way that's forward. Great. Absolutely. It's great, isn't it? And you can demonstrate what sort of wildlife you can bring in if you do just leave a few areas that are unkempt, untidy. It doesn't have to be neatly clipped, does it? Um, I was looking the other day at a really great bit of news, kind of a sort of rewilding on a very, very large scale, which is... Uh, the bigger than my garden, you mean? <laughs> a little bit bigger than your garden, I think, but this purchase of about 5,000 acres uh, of grouse moor, or former grouse moor, Langham Moor, by the community up there. Uh, so that's really fantastic that that's happening, and hopefully that will be an example to others, an inspiration to others, to show what can be done, sort of regeneration with the environment at its heart. Yes. I mean, and a community buyout is a good scheme all round, isn't it? And that's kind of a really nice segue into today's programme because we've got um, some guests who are experts at uh, rewilding, both from a national perspective and also from a much more local community's perspective. So um, I guess it's time for us to shut up and listen to them. Absolutely. Absolutely. So put the gardening tools away. Uh, in, yeah. Back in the potting shed. That's a great uh, thing about rewilding is you don't need to do any gardening. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. So, <laughs> you just take out your mug of tea and you stand and look at it. You know, it's yeah, fantastic. Great. No kit required. Fantastic. That's for me, definitely. Okay, then, let's get on. Planet Pod, essential listening for everyone who cares about the planet. Hello and welcome to Planet Pod with me, Amanda Carpenter, and our producer, Jim Hayward. We're returning today to one of our favourite themes on the pod, rewilding, and it's been prompted in part by the report from Rewilding Britain that our climate is heating at such an extent that climate zones are moving northwards up to five kilometres a year. And this means that the species in those zones will have to be able to disperse onto new and possibly less hospitable land. So it's really important that we address climate heating in the context of rewilding and who better to talk about that and other aspects of their fabulous work than Rebecca Wrigley, who's the CEO and one of the founders of Rewilding Britain. Rebecca, it's great to have you on the podcast today. Thanks for joining us. It's great to be here. And my other guest um, is joining us from Norfolk. Dominic Buskell manages Wild Ken Hill, which is a fabulous area of rewilding project on the Norfolk coast. Dom, great to see you and thanks for joining us. Yes, thank you for having me. So, Rebecca, I wonder if I could start with you and the report, because to the untrained eye, this makes rather gloomy reading, I think. Well, yes, it is quite stark. Um, and it's it's kind of thinking through the reality and consequences of, of climate heating. So what we did was a bit of research, looked into the existing research, and the estimate that we came up with is that climate zones, as you mentioned earlier, are moving at around five kilometres a year. It's it's more in marine environments, but then species, or many species, not all, kind of generally move just to a certain extent to keep up with it. So it, it changes, it's variable. Um, and what does and a climate zone moving actually mean? So does that mean somewhere well, which would normally have been host to a particular type of species population has just gone north and therefore will be a bit colder and a bit more inhospitable or what does it actually mean for the creatures themselves? All species have a niche in which they are able to live comfortably and what this means is the combination of temperature and precipitation is moving so fast that those species will have to move to keep up to stay within a kind of a climate envelope that, that they are able to survive in um, and it may be that it not 
just that um, it becomes inhospitable, but they it may also be a kind of failure to thrive. So it's just at the edge of their capacity to adapt. And it's not just single species, it's the assemblages of species, the communities of species, because obviously, for example, um, we all know that birds are arriving earlier in spring. If they arrive um, too early and the, uh, the insect species on which they depend have, haven't hatched yet, then they're likely to survive or at least not thrive. So, I mean, the beauty of nature is it's, its complexity, but that complexity is going to have to shift and adapt as those climate envelopes or those climate spaces uh, move north. And, and obviously that, again, it, it will depend on whether areas are, are flat or inclined. So species can move up hillsides and may only need to move 100 metres or uh, on flatland, they might need to move five kilometres to keep up with the same climate envelope, that little niche that, to which they adapt, adapted and within which they can thrive. And I'm assuming that, that, of course, some of those species in that envelope will need to move, but maybe some of them won't. So you'll get species sort of tumbling on top of each other. So it'll be like a domino yeah. effect. So you'll get species moving into an area where other species may not have moved out and then they'll be competing for resources. And that's, you know, and that in itself might create real chaos for the species. Yeah, and particularly where we have really overly simplified ecosystems, because that brings vulnerability. Because, again, the beauty of nature is the kind of incredible complexity and the linkages between species. And actually, that brings resilience to climate change, because that complexity can mean that certain species move, other species don't, but the whole system almost adjusts and shifts. But if you have ecosystems um, which are highly simplified and there's only a few species, it doesn't have that ability to kind of shift and change in the same way. Can you give me an example of what a really simple ecosystem might look, look like? Well, I mean, to be honest, a, a, an agricultural field is a pretty simplified system or a single species conifer plantation. Um, so you've reduced the complexity there. I mean, it's a, it's a necessary um, ecosystem, obviously, because we need food to survive and to thrive ourselves as one of as humans, as one of the sort of species in, a, in the ecosystem. But it, it, in many ways, they're downgraded ecosystems uh, because they don't have that full complexity and those full food webs and um, trophic cascades. And that's exactly some of the, the, the landscape that you were working with at Wild Ken Hill, wasn't it, um, Dom? A very simple arable landscape and simple wooded landscapes initially. So tell us a little bit about the project and what you've been doing, because it sounds absolutely fascinating. Yeah, so uh, we're about a, a 4,000 acre holding and, and we've taken a thousand acres of that and, and begun to rewild it. Um, as you say, half of that was formerly arable, uh, kind of quite sandy soils, marginal farmland. Um, and the other half was a, was a single block of woodland, some of which was quite rich, um, you know, nice woodland pasture and, 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 even, and some heathland too. But a lot of which, as you say, was sort of more recent plantations um, of, of kind of lower uh biological value so so that, that's kind of our starting point and we're we're kind of aiming for this this rich mosaic of, of kind of open grassland scrub woodland pasture heathland um and with our kind of coastal site it, it, it backs up to another kind of 500 acres of, of freshwater marsh uh which we're managing a bit more actively uh but that that is a as a, as a block is a really exciting kind of place for for, for biodiversity and you know to the to the to the reports that we've seen from Rewilding Britain, it's it's just so important. It, you know, adds a great deal of emphasis on this kind of work because th these sorts of systems, you know, even at fifteen hundred acres, they do help to provide a, a better degree of resilience and connectivity to allow these species to survive the warming that we're going to see. And when you say you've taken those acres, is this 
out of the whole, what are you doing with the rest? I mean, are you running the rest as a as a commercial farm or as a or some sort of other um, activity? Yeah, so on the remaining to half, we are we are farming regeneratively. So we're we are, it's still a commercial operation, it's still for profit, but it's very much focused on kind of long-term soil health, uh, not just kind of short-term yields. So that that in it that in itself is also really exciting. And uh, you know, rewilding is a is a fantastic, you know, land use tool for delivering, you know, carbon sequestration and biodiversity and, and all sorts of other ecosystem services. We're also with our farmland using another tool, regenerative agriculture, which you know is equally exciting. Um, what does that mean to people who don't might not understand what regenerative agriculture is? Yeah, no, it's a little, a little bit of jargon. So apologies. It's it's um, no, no, it's, good. it's a it's a style of farming focused on soil health. Okay. And when you get a healthy soil you get all sorts of great things and it's all it's all related to 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 growth of organic matter and so you get increased carbon sequestration in the soil you get better water retention uh you get below ground soil biodiversity which helps above ground biodiversity so our 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 farming system is actually you know quite 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 rich with species um you know farmland birds songbirds invertebrates and and that that in itself is is a hugely positive story and one that could, you know, is very, very scalable because we farm, you know, 70% of, of the land in the UK. So, Dom, how do you do that? I mean, are you just not putting any um, artificial fertilisers and chemicals on it? Or are you lying, lying, having, you know, kind of rotation, what we would have learned about at school 30 years ago about lying fallow? Or are you planting different kind of crops? How do you actually create the richness in the soil? Because I do remember that Izzy Tree from NEP always talks about the fact that we've only got about 50 years left of usable soil in the UK if we don't do something dramatically. And that was the part of their argument for, for scaling up NEP, you know, having mini NEPs. So is that what you're doing? You're making the soil richer and more productive yes absolutely so you're, you're growing food but simultaneously you're you are regenerating your soil and there's a few kind of principles and, and techniques to that you know there's um you know you always want to have a living root in the soil for example so that means um you know when you've when you've harvested your cash crop uh not just leaving uh you know that that stubble and then and then plowing it and leaving that over winter but actually drilling a cover crop uh so you that that binds the soil over winter and Many cover crops actually add back fertility uh, over winter, uh, they, so they fix nitrogen back into the soil. So that's just an example, but there's there's many different things you can do. You know, reduce your inputs, uh, re- yeah, so fertilizer, fewer pesticides, and so forth. Things like intercropping. There's a, there's a variety of techniques. And wild margins. I mean, is that do you have that? I mean, people talk about wild margins quite a lot on the sides of fields. So instead of, you know, when I was a kid, you couldn't walk around a field because the the farmer would have ploughed right up to the hedge and you couldn't walk. But a wild margin is a space that you can walk along and that's that allows some of the wildlife to come back, I guess, does it? Absolutely. And it and it's actually we we now know that, you know, having a a good, a decent margin, six meters or or even more, is not only beneficial for the wildlife and, and your biodiversity, but actually your farming system. So, you know, the total field output actually improves when you add a margin. So even though you've got less farming area, uh, the, the yield you get because of the, the pollinators and the beneficials, uh, the beneficial invertebrates uh, actually starts to go up. So, you know, we, we uh, and, and actually it helps your costs go down. Uh, so a great example we had this year was, was we just, uh, a lot of flea beetle in, in, in oilseed rape is as big as you have. And, uh, we just had so many ladybirds because we, we haven't used insecticide for, for nine years now uh, that we, we barely had to kind of worry about it because the ladybirds were doing all the pest control for us. And then we had lots of swifts, you know, diving over our all seed rape fields, you know, feeding on all the invertebrates. So it's just a sort of it, it's another great tool um, and one that we're really excited about. 
And that must really help to convince sceptical farmers because the idea that you can have a slightly less land under management at a better yielding crop and therefore more money by doing a little bit less is a really powerful argument, isn't it? Because there are still quite a lot of people out there who are sceptical, who feel that we just need to, you know, plough every inch and fertilise and chemically treat every, every, every scrap because we need to produce food. So it must be a very powerful argument for some of your kind of sceptical neighbours, maybe. Yeah, I mean, uh, neighbours neighbors are definitely curious and interested, uh, not sceptical, but uh, it, it, there is an economic part to this. And, you know, it, when, when you transition to this sort of farming, you know, there are there is a bit of a dip in yields. I you know, won't hide that because ultimately you're working with a soil that you have degenerated for, for many years. Uh, so into, well, as you build the fertility, there is a bit of a drop off. But what we found is that we were actually be able to, to decrease our costs faster and our yields went down in those first few years. And that's because you have to spray less, uh, you have to manage less, you have to use less diesel. So that was that was that was great. So you know we've been able to show our neighbours and anyone who's interested, our, our gross margins and our net margins farming this way have gone up, um, and that's really powerful. And in, and in time, I hope that, that 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 will that will go further. So our our costs will stay low, and our, our yields might improve as our fertility picks back up. That will be a positive picture. And I guess those those margins are a bit like your corridors, aren't they, Rebecca? Because I know one of the projects Rewild in Britain is looking at is, is wildlife corridors and, and, and a network linking up smaller wilded spaces across the UK. So we don't all have to be big landowners to take part in this. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the um, I mean, there are multiple benefits to rewilding, but one of them that came out of the report is that one of the most significant actions that we can take to avoid climate-related extinction and habitat loss is to increase the quality and connectivity of habitat into which species can disperse so that they don't come across you know, motorways or, or large areas of intensive agriculture that they can't pass through. And so you know, we know for those multiple reasons, for carbon sequestration, for climate adaptation, for, you know, to address biodiversity loss and to give ourselves economic opportunities like the ones Dominic just described, we need to act now and, and massively upscale the kind of pace and uh, ambition of change. So what we'd like to see is um, at least 30% of Britain rewilding and in nature's recovery by 2030. And we'd like to see that in you know swathes of land right from Cornwall to Caithness up the sort of spine of Britain down through our river corridors to our coasts and around the coast as well, because well, the marine environment is just as important as the terrestrial environment. Of that 30%, we'd like to see at least 5% core rewilding areas, so as sort of far up the rewilding spectrum as possible. But 25% in, in land and marine uses uh, that are nature-enhancing, like the ones that Dominic just described, like low-impact silviculture, for instance, where it's mixed planting, continuous cover, Forms of production that, in a sense, mimic natural processes. Again, just as Dominic describes, wide margins increase the numbers of pollinators and predators of the pest species. So what you end up with is you're using those natural processes to your economic benefit, as it were. And we feel that everyone can play play their part, from kind of doorstep to mountaintop, down river valleys and to the sea. So we'd love to see not just neighbourhood watch groups, but neighbourhood rewilding groups where people come together and rewild their gardens that may lead into their parks, that may lead in through these river corridors out into rural areas. And I think for us, change, it's its a movement for change. That's thats the only way we're going to get the scale and pace that we need to see. So its it is, yes, 
kind of government action that we need to see. We need financial and regulatory support for, for land use change. And we need to see rewilding is just mainstreamed within the way that we manage the land and sea. But we also need locally led coordinated action. And that's why we've just set up the rewilding network of which Dom and the team at Welkin Hill are one of our sort of founding members because everyone can play their part because we're getting, you know, loads of people contacting us saying, what can we do to rewild? So we, the, the network, the idea of the network is to bring together people that are already rewilding or wanting to rewild and to provide a kind of web-based learning exchange platform so that everyone can learn from each other so we can start to connect up initiatives and again support this sort of groundswell of action and uh, you know another really amazing example recently is the um, Langham initiative in southern Scotland which is a community buyout of land for nature for local livelihoods and for climate and so we'd love to see a whole myriad of different initiatives from community-led initiatives private landowners but also public landowners. So we'd love to see, for example, our national parks required to rewild at least 30% of their land core rewilding. I mean, the national parks should be our shining examples of Britain's amazing diverse habitats and ecosystems. So that it's going to take coordinated action from communities upwards, from government, everyone from their gardens to their mountaintops, if we're going to achieve the change that is, is needed. But we just feel really positively that there is that groundswell PlanetPod is sponsored by Akil Management Sustainability Consultancy, providing resources and support for all businesses to help them tackle their climate change challenges and work towards net zero. For more, visit akilmanagement.com. Undoubtedly, there's a huge amount of community support for this, and I think people are very passionate about it and they're passionate about what they can do in their communities and, and you know and the, the Scottish um, example you just used was a community buyout wasn't it but, yeah. but 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 it can't just be us we do need support and frameworks through regulation yeah. and policy don't we where are the really big barriers Rebecca in in, in regulatory um, terms or in political terms small p and big p because there are barriers aren't there I mean I, I remember when we first got a group of people together to talk about rewilding in Britain. Um, we talked about the barriers then and, the, and and basically the biggest barrier that came up at that point was the common agricultural policy. So we do have an opportunity in moving out of the common agricultural policy in replacing it with something that mainstreams rewilding as, as I mentioned, as just one part of the way that we manage the land and sea. So we do support ELMS, which is the proposed environmental land management scheme, and the fact that it supports public money for public goods, um, so that it rewards people for the you know, wider ecosystem services, the wider public goods that the land and the sea provide. And that includes biodiversity, carbon sequestration, and a whole range of um, human health and well-being, in addition to food production, which is, of course, also vital. So we support that and a, a regulatory approach that isn't just what's written on paper, but is actually acted upon. I think nearly 30% of our marine inshore and offshore waters are marine protected areas, but very few of them are actually enforced. So we're seeing dredging in those waters. Um, and when you see the, the aftermath of dredging, you wonder why. You know, we're seeing in Boris Johnson's announcement that he wanted to see 30% by 2030 as, as well. But that would only involve increasing our 26% of our protected areas to 30%. Well, if you look at the 26% of protected areas that we have, very few of them are refuges 
development for nature. So just increasing them by 4% without changing the way that they're managed or you know, enforcing regulation is not going to change anything. I mean, another example of we have what is actually very good EU legislation in the Water Frameworks Directive, but a recent report came out said that none of our rivers in Britain are in good ecological conditions. So we have an, an amazing framework, but it's not enforced. Do you have anxieties about that? Because we have talked on the pod before about the impact of Brexit on, on, on the environment. And, and if we move out of some of the European regulatory frameworks, we will have less control and we will have less redress if if things go wrong i mean unfortunately the entire farming population doesn't think like like dominic they don't have that vision for for a better healthier more balanced agricultural arable system so 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 where we have got problems where we have got people flouting the law or doing the wrong thing surely we're going to be more vulnerable post brexit because we won't have that european legislation to fall back on there are risks and opportunities i think i mean again if they follow through with the Environmental Land Management Scheme in England and the way that that is articulated in the devolved nations policies, that could provide a real impetus for change. So that could potentially be positive. But then if we have either weakened down regulatory frameworks or regulatory frameworks that aren't enforced, then that could be a huge risk. But again, I think if the more that we, we come together and we demonstrate that change can be positive both for for nature and for people and for climate, then the more that we can show through that groundswell of support that change is possible with those multiple benefits. So yeah, I would say there are risks and opportunities. Very tactfully put. I'd have to say that we aren't just talking about um, wanting to do this because it's good for, for, you know, preventing species lost. And, and we know that there are huge numbers. I think you, your report says something like 56% are in decline and 15% of our species are threatened with extinction. So it isn't just because we want to be nice to insects and animals. This is actually in our interest, isn't it, to have a better more balanced ecosystem because well, many of these habitats are protecting us. So there's things like flood management, for example, and some of the, the work that I know that you're doing at Wild Ken Hill, Dominic, you're looking, you know, you said you butted on to, to, to a marine or a, or a flood marsh habitat. Some of that's really important for managing flood and managing risk, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And I think the, the, the whole thinking around natural capital and, and payments for ecosystem services will gradually encourage us to really sit down and, and think about how we how we value these these really important things that nature provides us um i think what you know one of the exciting things that we will probably see over you know through elms and and in the second half of this decade is is the increase of you know private money that's going into uh nature conservation and environmental work in the uk and and you know rebecca talked about risks and opportunities a, you know a great opportunity we have is with elms uh, and, and using elms as well as you know biodiversity net gain to uh, to drive uh, you know large amounts of private money into into nature conservation that's quite exciting and I think you know we talked about the economics changing for farming when that when that when these things sort of flip and suddenly you can as a farmer farmer a lot of farmers you know we're business people you can make more money from you know farming regeneratively because you can sell your carbon storage and sell your biodiversity and your, your nitrate mitigation, as well as your crop, that becomes very exciting. And I think you could see change happen quite quickly at that point. Yeah, I guess I'm slightly alarmed when I hear about the expressions like private money coming in. I mean, part of me thinks that actually, if what you're doing is you're making your land more productive to farm, and as a result, you're more productive as a farmer, then perhaps you do you need additional funding coming in. And I, and, 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 
I suppose people would say, well, hang on a minute, you know, it, it, you're going to benefit from this because if you do the right thing, your land will be better and your crop yield will be higher and your costs will go down. Why do you need a subsidy or a payment on top? Um, well, the answer to that probably is that, you know, almost every major agricultural market in the world is subsidised by their own governments. So uh, if we just simply say our farmers shouldn't have any, then in addition to the fact that we're already quite a small market, uh, we'll be fundamentally uncompetitive and we just we just won't have any of that in the UK. So where's the private money going? Is that going into is that going into land purchase and managing land differently? Yeah, or is that I, going into supporting bigger conservation projects? Well, I think uh, it depends what the regulation says, but that, that's that's what will mandate it, I think. But it, it, it's I think it'll take mostly to take the form of kind of multi-annual payments to deliver ecosystem services. And you know, pri- you say private money is a, maybe a bad thing, possibly, but this is this is replacing the withdrawal of government money that we're going to see with elms, I suppose. So I don't think any of us probably like the idea of attaching monetary value to nature. But if we're going to achieve things like 30 and 30, I think it's I think it's really important. Mm. And I guess that, you know, somebody has to pay for it somewhere. And if it isn't coming from the government, you're quite right. It needs to come from other sources. And and there are multiple benefits that fall out of that, because, you know, we've talked a bit about your land yield. But what we haven't talked about is some of the really exciting things that you're doing, you know, across the across the site, including including reintroducing beavers. (laughs) Absolutely, you know, one yeah. of those fabulous rewilding keystone species that we all love so much. Tell us about the beavers, Don. Um, yeah, keystone species. Uh, I think probably one of the one of the first species you look to uh, if you're serious about a rewilding project and, and delivering kind of biodiversity gain. Our beavers, we've got two pairs there now. They're going into a kind of a, a, a drained area of woodlands, which we kind of want to rewet and make it a nice swampy mess full of pools and aquatic plants and invertebrates. They've been here for about six months, very dry summer, so not too much activity in that period. But with this sort of last few months of rain, seen lots of dams starting to appear, uh, you know, nice kind of linear wetland systems starting to appear in the woodlands and just really excited about, you know, how that will unfold uh, over the next five years. For us, it's it's really a, a biodiversity play, uh, but, there, you know, there's other ways that, the, that these animals can deliver benefits in upland systems. It's a lot more about, you know, uh, mitigating downstream flood risk um, and another thing that beavers do and yeah, water quality as well so you know huge exciting and I, I often sort of find myself watching the the camera trap footage of the beavers kind of messing around in the in the enclosure and I, I sort of have to remind myself it's actually really really important you know conservation work we're we're one of kind of 30 40 sites probably now in England with beavers in an enclosure or, or in a sort of a monitored wild stretch of river all looking to um, push forward the regulation around this animal, uh, which is, you know, weirdly listed as non-native uh, in England, and you know you can't you can't introduce them uh, except into an enclosure, which is really daft. So, uh, you know, it, really exciting stuff. And I guess beavers are so endearing that they kind of get people on board don't they and one of the issues that that we need to do that that both of you are facing with the projects you've got and the the work and campaigning that you're doing particularly Rebecca is is finding finding the sweet swap for people finding what makes people um tick and are excited about the idea of rewilding whether it's just a small patch in their garden like me and that's just an excuse for not having to do any work in the garden elementally scruffy or whether it's actually coming to, to to understand and appreciate a habitat through a species like a beaver or or butterflies or the invertebrates is it's finding the trigger isn't it to get people excited and engaged that's what's so important absolutely and um talking of beaver i was lucky enough to go down to the river otter in devon which where they are wild and went down to the riverside and this, uh, the reason we knew where the right spot was is there are a little gathering of people there and the sense of 
kind of awe and wonder amongst that small group of people who were all silent. We're all silently waiting, very respectful of each each other and and the experience that we were having. It was, it, you know, and it really was a profound thing. And I think that's become even more evident through COVID um, that people's experience of nature is is so important, has been really important, but also our understanding of, of the part that the way that we are destroying nature has played in the, in the development of zoonotic diseases. And I mean, we know, uh, just kind of also connecting in with the, the kind of economics of it that we, we were talking about just now, that we're going to have to invest in, in our economies post-COVID. And there's huge potential in, in a green recovery and, and really reorientating our economy to become what we call a more nature-based economy. And that doesn't necessarily have to involve compromise. And we would want that to be a nature-positive green recovery and investment in, in a different future. And there have been surveys showing that something like only 10% of people want to go back to where we were before. So many people want to see a brighter future, a different future, want us to reset our relationship with nature. And there's huge potential in building kind of economic resilience as well as ecological resilience. So there are many areas that now are almost entirely dependent on subsidies, uh, which makes them very vulnerable. And you know, subsidies... I think can always play their part, but it's also about diversifying into other forms of revenue and income um, and doing so in a way that is nature enriching. That's win-win as, as the example that Wildcan Hill shows. Yeah. And that's it, isn't it really? I mean, what we're looking at is we're looking at, if you like a mosaic landscape. So we're looking at a landscape that has all of these different habitats, whether it's peat bogs or heathlands or, or, or you know, arable that's being managed differently or woodlands or native um, rivers being allowed to, you know, accommodate fabulous populations of beavers. We want a rich and diverse landscape. And with that comes a rich and diverse economy, both, you know, social and local economy and also financial economy. So there's that really strong link, I suppose, between good stewardship and an economic growth in the right way for us as we come out of COVID and we look at the new future. Um, Rebecca, you've kind of summed up your plea. What, what would you ask for, Dominic, from a, a farmer's perspective? What is it that you think people could do to respond to, to some of the kind of rewilding challenges that face us? Um, I think that, you know, what we're principally looking for at the moment is probably from from government. You know, we, we understand there's a, a change in the framework, you know, that we're operating in. But what we don't have is is anywhere near enough detail to to make planning and investment decisions or or whatever going forward. Um, and I know that I, I speak on behalf of many, many farmers up and down the, the UK when I say that um, we don't know how this new scheme Elms is, is really going to shape up. We don't know what it's going to reward and whether there's going to be stick as well as the carrot. Uh, you know, we, we don't know whether the balance of payments will be for sort of quite business as usual farming, which would be a shame or for more complex landscape scale change. We don't know whether it inc even include, you know, carbon sequestration at this stage. It's something they said they'd like to do, but we, we still, we just don't have the details. So really, you know, what we want from, you know, the secretary of state and, and, and DEFRA is, is a lot more detail and clarity on on this new scheme. And we've got such a fantastic opportunity, haven't we, to do that? And and we need to grab that opportunity before before it's too late because we cannot see any more species loss, and we have to halt that migration of species <laughs> from unfriendly climate zones. So much to do, and we could talk about this all all day. So thank you both so much for giving us an insight into a, actually quite a complex and and I think um, 
rich conversation and it's really interesting to get a, a working farmer's perspective on this Dominic so thank you for joining us and Rebecca thank you for coming and as always sharing the wonderful stuff that Rewilding Britain does if you want to hear more about it you can visit the website rewildingbritain.org.uk um, and download the report and also find out about how you can start a rewilding network or project in your local community and to Dom from Wild Ken Hill. And again, if you want to see the beavers in action, um, visit their website, wildkenhill.co.uk, um, and you can pick up their social media feeds and see beavers doing their beaver stuff. Don't forget to listen to other episodes of the podcast. You can catch us on theplanetpod.com, or you can subscribe via um, your favourite podcast app. And if you do so, please take a moment to rate and review the programme because we really appreciate your feedback. Thanks for listening, and goodbye. Planet Pod is brought to you by Akil Management. My thanks to our producer, Jim Haywood, and our researcher, Beth Palmer. And to you, our listeners. Without you, we'd be very lonely. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at planet underscore pod, or visit our website. Please get in touch. We'd love to hear from you with ideas for future programmes. Thanks for listening.